As much as I love painting a target over my face, let's get this right out of the way. I do very much like this episode. So what I've decided to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about behind the scenes, and then I'm going to complain about the episode, you know, critique it, criticize it, yell, whine, whatever words you want to use. And then I'm going to talk about the episode proper. You with me? Okay. This is done by Morgan Gendel and Peter Allen Fields. Basically, Morgan Gendel wrote the episode, and then Peter Allen Fields took to the second draft and made the teleplay. And however many drafts were in between those two steps. I mention that because Mr. Gendel has done almost nothing for Star Trek over the years. Which is funny, because this was also directed by Peter Lerritsen. I'm probably pronouncing wrong. Because he's someone who's done almost nothing for Star Trek over the years. It's like one of three episodes he's directed. And one of two episodes Mr. Gendel has written. And yet, by somehow, these two people who have almost nothing to do with Star Trek managed to come in and do this episode. Commonly considered one of, if not the best episode of Star Trek The Next Generation ever. Before doing this, I made a point of looking up a whole bunch of top lists. I asked a few of my friends, and I asked in my Discord what their favorite episodes were. The Discord answers were extremely mixed, just all over the place, so I can't comment on those. The friends all listed this in their top three, every single one of them. And it was in every top ten list that I could find, or at least one that I consider to be relatively reasonable or decent, including the, the big voting list. This is a really beloved episode, kind of like Darmok. I mentioned that earlier as well. Which ultimately brings us back to the cloud effect. See, here's the thing. Cloud effect is, in the off chance you didn't see the last two episodes where it came up, when you have a ridiculous, stupid, or bad premise, and somehow you manage to make something really good out of it. And that's this episode. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've heard people for years try to justify how in the world these barely more advanced than we are in real life people who don't even have space flight in any substantial matter were capable somehow of building a probe and launching it so and it would last without issue for about a millennium in order to interact with a completely alien mind, and then in that completely alien mind give them perfect information with no problems whatsoever. Do you know how hard that would be to do now with our own species? And we're more advanced than these people were. I could really dig into this. I could actually spend some time really analyzing just how nonsensical this point is. And that is ultimately the problem there. It is so nonsensical that it actually rips me completely out of the narrative. And and that is the biggest flaw of the episode in my... Well, no, that's not true. That's the second biggest flaw of the episode, in my opinion. Its premise is total nonsense. But we got the inner light out of it. Maybe I should rename it to Inner Light Effect. Although, it's worth noting that three episodes in a row have been following this. <laughs> Now, I mentioned it's the second biggest flaw. What's the biggest flaw? Lack of continuity. <laughs> continuity, as I've often said, is really just another word for consequence. <laughs> and, and, and I've talked about the various different types 
of continuity over there. So we've got string continuity, we've got setting continuity, we've got flavor continuity, we've got character continuity. But this should be a huge, gigantic, life-altering event for Picard. Like, to the point where he's not even the same person anymore. I'm just going to quote something. I forgot to leave it out. That's why I just had a flash there. From Ronald D. Moore, I've always felt the experience at Interlight would have been the most profound experience in Picard's life and changed him irrevocably. However, that wasn't our intention when we created the episode. We were after a good hour of TV, and the larger implications of how this would really screw somebody up didn't hit home until later. That's the danger with TV. You're so focused on just getting the show produced every week that sometimes you suffer from the can't-see-the-forest-or-the-trees syndrome. We never intended to show the show to completely upend his character and force a radical change in the series, so we contented ourselves with a single follow-up in Lessons. Now, to be clear, that makes sense. And that is reality. You can't always do these kind of major changing arcs. Nowadays, it would be more common for this kind of massive sea change in a character to then radically alter someone's character arc through the rest of the show. But back then, in early 90s, there's no way. And nobody was even thinking about that back then, as Mr. Moore points out rather adequately. So this episode only really matters ever again once in Lessons. Oh, we'll see the flute, and it'll kind of be in there in background a few times, but for the most part, no, this is just, this is it. It's a one-off. And that bugs the crap out of me. That ultimately really gets to me, because, because this is a really good episode. Because Patrick Stewart absolutely nails it. Because the message of the piece is fantastic. Because there's so much different significance. I'm going to give my big postulate on what I think that this episode is really about. And I'm not going to state it as absolute truth because there's multiple ways I've seen multiple people interpret this episode. There's a lot of great, amazing, powerful things here that will never matter again. (laughs) Except for lessons where they mention it. Do you see why this bugs me so much? Maybe you don't. Maybe I've never explained myself fully here. It reminds me of the episode, I think it's Real Life, over on Voyager. It was actually a pretty good episode. And is never referenced again, ever. At least in that case, it's never referenced again, so that's even worse. (laughs) That's it. I'm done. And the odd chance you're still watching and not rushing to the comment section to tell me how stupid and awful I am, let's continue. First, I want to give special praise to Margot Rose, who plays Eileen. She's a guest star and not really a particularly prolific one in Star Trek, so she's not one of the big-name guest stars for Star Trek, but she does a really good job with her role. This is, in many ways, a two-act show between her and Picard, that is to say, Patrick Stewart. So the fact that the two manage to gel and work off each other as well as they do is a testament to how well this ended up working out. It's also worth noting, by the way, this script went through many revisions before it got to the format it is now. Uh, originally, it was going to be a completely different direction, you know, taken away to some alien facility. Then there was going to be things about, like, genocide and how these people are horrible. And then they were going to be about genocide in a different manner. And there's, it kept going with this sort of pseudo-anti-war allegory. It wasn't until Michael, Michael Pillar got involved and basically said, we need to focus this on Picard and make this about Picard, that the focus of the episode really came into being. And I'm talking about this now. Because... What we see is that everything in this episode is Picard. Everything that he is. And, and, and this is a multifaceted, multidimensional character who's been fleshed out for the sake of the course of about five years now. 
But we see many different facets and dimensions of his character in this one singular episode, and that is tricky to pull off. Huge, huge props to Patrick Stewart for managing just such a huge gamut of emotions and perspectives on the individual. Because, and this is something both uh, Peter Allen Fields and Michael Pillar both pointed out, it needed to still be Picard. This is something I've pointed out over in Voyager twice, that they got very right, in my opinion. Uh, one is in The Killing Game two-parter, and one is in Workforce, which is also a two-parter. In both cases, the crew of Voyager were shoved into new circumstances with new memories, but, but, they kept their personalities. And that was critical. They had to be themselves. Otherwise, we're, we're going to be deinvested. Otherwise, we're not going to care as much. Otherwise, what we have is an actor playing a different role, basically. Instead, those actors were still playing, you know, Janeway and Kim and Paris and blah, blah, blah. It's just, <coughs> excuse me, it's just the circumstance of their life was different. Same thing here. It needed to still be Picard. And the whole point was that this is Picard going down a different path in his life. Divorced from his career, which has been one of the key fundamental aspects of his personality for God, like 20 years, I think, in lore, and five years out of lore, and all of a sudden it's gone. So it's left. And that's what we see in this episode. We see the romantic. We see the scientist. We see the stubbornness. We see the, uh, the natural leader is still there. I mean, there's a lot of, I mentioned the lack of continuity, large scale, but within the episode there's actually a lot of effort to maintain tiny little tidbits of continuity in the background to show how his life has developed. And in fact, Michael Pillar went out of his way to basically sketch out, okay, here's what happens in between the, the time gaps. So they actually put the effort, This and this is what I love most about continuity, by the way, putting in the effort and work into showing it. They actually put the work and effort into deciding what happened in between so that they can then put tiny little inferences into each jump so that you get an implication of the life that we are seeing. Because what we're effectively getting is a bit of a strobe effect. Flash, and then five, five years, flash, and then ten years, flash, and then fifteen years, right? We only get these little tidbits of his life, and yet they do a wonderful job between the continuity, the acting, and a lot, little other things too. Like, for example, they kept the same general cast of uh, extras for most of the scenes, but brought in older people as it moved forward, and then gave them aging makeup. How many of you even noticed that? I bet a lot of you noticed it subconsciously. I mean, obviously some of the main named characters who have speaking roles got aging makeup, but even the random people in the background had makeup on them to make them look older, to help establish that these events are happening. It's, it's, it's a great effort. It's one of the re reasons I love this episode so much. Anyway, sorry. Just I, I, forgive me for gushing. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Let, let's let's move forward. So we find out uh, that they're on Catan. Settlers of Catan joke. We're walking. We're walking. I want to talk about the com concept of the comfy, comfy prison. Now, the concept of the comfy prison is different from the velvet prison. Uh, the velvet prison is it's a really nice place, but you're not allowed to leave. You know, it, it, it's a prison room, but it's very comfortable. That kind of thing. The comfy prison is when you go out of your way to make someone as comfortable as they can be so they don't want to leave. You are effectively trying to change their minds by being sufficiently nice and positive towards them that they want to stay. A, a kind of weird form of inverse um, 
I guess inverse is the wrong word. It, it's a form of psychological manipulation, basically. Whether for good or ill intent is up to you. But that's exactly what we have here. He has a wife, friends, a community, and all of them love and care about him. And he's not restricted. He can leave. He just can't go back to his ship, right? He can wander around. He can do basically whatever he wants. And simply the niceties of it and the time of it wear him down to the point where he starts to accept it all the time. I mean, the first time gap we see is five years. Think about that for a second. It's one of the other interesting things about this episode. It's actually hard, if not impossible, to really process what's happening here at, at a fundamental human level. Like, it's hard to think, okay, and there's 30 years of life, right? I saved 30 years. We don't actually have exact numbers, so I'm going to bring up a calculation later, which is based on vague figures, please forgive me. But we're functioning at a rate of roughly 630,720 times the speed of normal. So that's a lot of stuff shoved into a very small period of time. And think about that for a second. Anyway, sorry. So we see this comfy prison, and right at the beginning they mention that they're planting the tree and they mention the drought. It's one of the first things they mention. It's part of that background continuity thing I mentioned. So Picard, who is an intelligent person, decides to basically play along, which I like. Because it's probably the smartest thing to do, even if these were evil aliens trying to coerce him. By playing along, they are more inclined to answer his questions. In so doing, he can learn more, either directly, because he can trust their answers, or indirectly, by how they answer him or what they refuse to answer. You know, the, the method of communication giving him intel, basically. So it's a smart move on his part. And of course, then he goes out for a walk. I love his bit, though. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm hungry. So I guess this isn't a dream. Nice little touch, actually. Originally, in the in several of the original versions of the script, it cut away to the Enterprise quite a bit more. It was, as I mentioned earlier, Michael Piller who insisted, no, 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 we should focus really hard on Picard. This is my final critique of this episode. I wish we didn't have the ship sections at all. In my opinion, they, to use my own review system, they are a negative to story. Not just because they are unnecessary and basically padding and filler, but also because they actually detract from my enjoyment of the story. What we have here is, it gives, it gives everything away immediately, first of all. So there's no mystery. Second of all, nothing significant or relevant happens during the ship sequences. Now... I th I've thought about this before, and when I actually wrote a note, and then I had a little star by it, because I wanted to watch the episode and see if I was right about my theory, and I was. They used the ship sequences as a gap in between time jumps. Okay, that makes sense. Catches, each ship sequence also coincides with a commercial break. In short, you remember Cause and Effect? Just a few episodes ago? Cause and Effect very intelligently and smartly put one sequence, one loop through the time through the time they're going through in each gap, and then there would be a commercial break, and then they go through another loop. I think they should have done the same thing here. I think this skips back to the ship, again, you know, pull me out of it, get rid of the mystery, and are just filler. But they're not even necessary for a, for a framing device. They're not even necessary for us to actually have the gaps in between time jumps. Because it could be like, da -da -da -da, fade to black, come back in, 
we're five years later. It's not like we don't already have all of the visual inference, as well as audible through dialogue inference, of the fact that time has passed. I mean, for God's sakes, if nothing else, they add a little bit more makeup to Patrick Stewart each time. So, that little irritation aside, I find it interesting that originally there was even more cuts back to the ship. But I did mention that calculation. So, there's this bit where they decide to disconnect the probe from Picard. Okay. Beverly gives the analogy of you don't pull a knife out just because someone's been stabbed. That could make things worse. And, of course, that's exactly what happens. But I remember, remember I mentioned that calculation. I did it because I was curious how much time pass, passed in the simulation while he was stuttering in real life. 7.3 days on the dot, actually. I found that very interesting because at first I was going to complain about, oh, God, he, I mean, did it just skip over it? Did it not make sense? But actually, that makes a weirdly large amount of sense. Someone being hospital-ridden for about seven days is not that out of bounds, and then he would recover and go back to normal. The end, basically. In fact, it could have simply skipped over the seven-day time period intermittently and be like, here you are. This is a good time to mention, I've heard a theory that he doesn't literally live out the 30 years at the extremely accelerated rate I mentioned earlier, the 630,720 time speed, but that instead he's being given flashes of memories. So in other words, the only things he actually experiences real-time are what we see. Now, I want to mention that because that is clearly not the intent of both writers. I've, I've seen a lot of interviews by both of them about this episode. But it's an interesting thought to think about. Of course, then they later repeat this trick with O'Brien over in DS9, but then again, some people have mentioned the same trick over there. So take your own mind on that one. Anyways, <clears throat> so... I mentioned that they do a lot of little background stuff, and they mentioned five years of a drought. Now, we've dealt with droughts in real life, and they're pretty bad, but I'm not actually sure if in recent history we've had something that bad. Five years of drought, which is hitting an entire region, and as we learn later, an entire planet. In fact, one of the things that I've, I've always noticed they changed the lighting at the last time, time point. But did you ever notice they slowly increase the lighting each time point as the sun slowly starts to get worse and worse over the years? Nice little touch. Like I said, a lot of little good touches like that. And they mentioned the idea of atmospheric condensers and what they can do with that and blah, blah, blah. <sighs> There's this bit where Picard mentions he couldn't imagine life without children. It's an interesting thought, because I have seen many people say the same thing, and I've discovered something. And I'm going to go ahead and say this, because I imagine some of you guys will fall into the same two brackets that this tends to be. So for those of you out there who do not have children, I mean, you probably like kids, or maybe at least tolerate kids, but they're kids, right? It's whatever. It's not a big deal, per se. You probably have some basic protective instincts, but that's about it. But for those of you who have had children, who've raised children, you probably understand that feeling, which I can't really vocalize, that feeling of arduous, difficult, mind-numbing, wearying tasks that you have to do to take care of that kid, which are so fulfilling and awesome and some of the best years of your life. And that probably sounds alien to some of you. And for the rest of you, I bet you're just nodding at me. And I mention that because ever since I had to really start taking care of my niece, 
this is obviously in my past at this point, since I don't even live in the same house with her anymore. Um, but ever since I had to take care of my niece full time, I went through the same overall thing. And I started sharing that with some of my friends and family. And sure enough, that divide was there. Some people are like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then, like, I would tell that to, for example, my stepmom. And she just nodded, like, yep, totally gets it. But I mentioned this. Because it's obvious someone who is a parent either wrote that line or directed Stuart in that scene. Because that is exactly the intonation he gets across. That his life has been fundamentally changed by the children he has now taken care of and raised. And it's a, it's a great scene. I mean, they're all great scenes. What do you want from me? <laughs> this is basically a gush run. Let's just be honest about it. I love this episode, if it's not obvious. Anyway, so, yeah, um... So the disconnect happens, blah, blah, blah. This is, this is when we get to two big points. The message of the episode and, well, how horrible it would be to live on Canaan in those final years. I want you to imagine something for a moment. Science fiction has touched on this occasionally. I want you to imagine that Earth is doomed. No, I don't mean like climate change or political instability or war. I mean soul will go nova in 40 years. And that's it. We're dead. And there is nothing we can do about that. And that's important, because that's what I mean when I say the word doomed. It's not, oh no, this might be bad. No, this is something that we are utterly incapable of doing anything about. Something so completely beyond our understanding or power to influence. The star is just going to go, boop, and that's the end of it. And we're gone. And we don't even really have the ability to survive that. It's actually something that's been mentioned in quite a few... Uh, Star Trek works over the years about the idea that um, humanity leaving the solar system was actually very important. After all, in so doing, they were no longer limited to, you know, if something really bad happened in system, they would then be able to survive as a species. You know, the, the species would no longer rely on a single planet either, for that matter. But I'm getting off topic. But that level of doomed is hard to really process and yet, this is important because early on we see this administrator guy. And he's basically like, hi. You know, and he comes across as an obstinate bureaucrat character. Someone who is there to be like, oh yes, we will take your thoughts into consideration and then we'll push it off because big money or whatever. Later on we find out that they've actually been looking into the problem just as much as Picard has. And in so doing, they came to the same conclusion. And they gave up. Because they were doomed, as I was, as I spent so much time describing earlier, truly doomed, to the point where they recognized how bad it was. That's the kind of situation where people would probably commit suicide upon the realization. This brings us to an interesting question. Well, let's say that did happen in real life here on Earth. Forty years were gone. The whole planet, the whole system, newt. Nothing we can do about it. Do you think they should release that information to the public? Now, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to have a tone when I said that. I just was trying to say that in a questioning tone. Because there's no good answer there. I mean, you could argue it doesn't matter at that point, no matter what they do. You could argue that maybe they should uh, adhere to the truth, that people have the right to know and decide for themselves. You could argue that that would create a horrific mass panic scenario, where people would stop paying attention to things like rules or decency, because who cares, right? 
you could argue that maybe people should know just so they can make the most of the time they have. Which brings me to the message of the show. He says this line, make now matter. Now will never come again. I've heard a lot of people interpret that in different ways. So as I, as I prefaced earlier, this is just going to be my own interpretation. This is what you do when you are dying. Now, let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. Several episodes ago, we covered the first duty. And there was a almost throwaway line in that where the Admiral mentioned that life must go on. You remember that? I, I made a point of mentioning it. And I did it on purpose because I wanted to lay the groundwork for this point here. In so doing, we got an impression of what it's like for the living, as in the survivors. See, the, the, the really unfortunate natural reality is that death is a thing. It, it, it's a thing. We have to accept it. We have to deal with it. We have to do something about it. We can't, we can't blind ourselves to it. It's going to happen. That's life. And so the first duty, in brief, discussed what it would be like to be the living, to no longer, to to be those who survived, as opposed to those who died. Life must go on. Here, we see the inverse of that. What we do when we are the dying. And this brings me to the core idea. Because it's not like they gave up, per se. They did, after all, make this probe, so that some version, some idea some knowledge of their civilization would endure. But it's also about making sure that life goes on. It's the same idea, in short. Life must go on. We cannot look to the star that is going to kill us and say, well, I say we cannot. I shouldn't say that word. The The message is that we should not. That we should live even though tomorrow will not come. Guaranteed. Doomed. I, re- I repeat that word because I spent so much time establishing it. I want to make it very clear. Doomed. And yet, we should not let that stop us from living. Because now does matter. And because life does go on. Both for the living and for the dying. It's an interesting message in its own right. It's not quite hopeful, but in so doing, I find it more believable, more relatable. Instead of hopeful, I feel this is more defiant. Looking up and saying, at at, at the thing, at the doom that is coming, and saying, okay, and then going back to your life and living. Then Picard wakes up, 25 minutes. 30 years. Absolute credence to Patrick Stewart. He nails his performance in that scene. It's part of why I wish the ship scenes hadn't been there. Imagine if there was no ship scenes, and then all of a sudden he just wakes up, and he and we find out that it's only been 25 minutes. Imagine the impact there. Because then we would get the same impact he does. Well, the same type of impact. Obviously, he didn't live through 30 years of life, but you get the point. This is, in short, an absolutely phenomenal episode, despite its flaws. I love this episode, if that's not obvious. And I am very, very curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this, and what you think the theme is, what you think that core message is. Because as I've said, I've heard many interpretations over the years, and I'd like to hear yours too, if you don't mind. 
Thank you for sharing this with me. I'll see you next time.